Hey everyone, welcome to the 24th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Joel Myers. Joel is a former three-time collegiate All-American at Point Loma University and was the National Player of the Year in 2010. He's currently a USPTA elite professional teaching in San Diego. His Instagram page has well over 100,000 followers and provides daily education on the fundamentals of tennis. On today's episode, we discuss technical fundamentals you can learn from pro tennis, his favorite return tactic, and his best advice for the 4-0 player. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Joel, welcome to the pod. Hey, Jonathan, how you doing? It's great, man. So when I started on Instagram, it's been almost two years. Your account, Joel Myers Tennis, was like the OG. I think at the time it had like 50K followers. Now you're over 100. But you were like the blueprint for what I saw as quality instruction. Obviously, you had created a following. And I was like, oh, that, that'd be something I'd kind of be interested in doing. So most people who probably follow you on there don't know your background. So before we get going, can you kind of just share who you are, what your tennis background is, and kind of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. So I uh, grew up in Australia. I was born in Sydney and then I you know, moved down to Melbourne when I was about 10 or 11 and I started training at uh, Melbourne Park and I spent most of my junior days there. I bounced around between uh, there in Queensland. I was at Pat Cash's Academy for a couple of years, uh, but I basically you know, spent my entire junior days trying to head work towards professional and then got to a point where I was about 18 and I tore my shoulder and I my, my glenoid labrum, my shoulder, and it sort of set me back. So I ended up deciding to go the college route and I chose, I had three college offers and one of them was in San Diego. And I took that based on Google Earth. I looked at Google Earth and I was like, where is Point Loma Nazarene University? And I found it on, on Google Earth. And so I decided to go there. And uh, my plan was always to spend about maybe two years and then try and give the tour a go. And then I got two years in and I was like, oh, I'm close to my degree. This place is amazing. And then I started uh, after, after my, I got my degree, I started my coaching business and then I was realistic in where I think my potential was as a professional player and started coaching real early on. And um, I think probably 2015, I started sharing things on Instagram tips, things I was learning and things that interested me. And it sort of started rolling from there. And I, you know, I remember there's, there's a few of us doing it at the time and now there's, there's plenty of us doing the online stuff, but it's definitely a way that you can connect with people and show them what you know and share your passion and stay connected. And I think that's the thing that I enjoy the most about Know, the online stuff is the connection with the tennis community because you know I'm in Coronado it's a small island it's a beautiful place but I get to reach more people um, just because of the fact that my Instagram has a bit of a following so yeah it's been nice I enjoy it and I, I try and stay on there as much as I can these days. Did you know so you had pro aspirations and that was obviously kind of where you were centered but did you kind of know that when tennis was over whether that was going to be at age 22 or 32 that you wanted to be a coach after? Yeah, it's, I, I sort of supplemented my uh, training income as a coach early on. Maybe I was 16, 17, and I got some work at Melbourne Park. Tennis Australia was was some of those running some of those programs there. And so that really helped me sort of get my initial start in it. And I think, you know, it wasn't always the goal, but I think the deeper I dug into the financials and what it would actually take to become professional, the more unrealistic for me it was. And so... The, the secondary path was getting into coaching. I can still be in the sport that I love. I can still be active outside every day. Like that's not many people get to turn their hobby into their career. And so most of us who are doing this now are really lucky to be in that position. So 
you know, this is as good as it could get. And plus, you know, I don't think I, I would have loved the traveling anyway. You know, when you when you look at all, at all of the details that go into being professional, it's not as glamorous as it seems. And so I think, you know, I've picked the best the best uh, option for myself, and, and I'm so I'm really enjoying where I'm at. I'm always interested in this one because, you know, obviously I had a bunch of coaches as a junior and then I've learned from coaches like you and other famous coaches and and all their work. Are there any coaches that have greatly influenced the way you see the game and the way that you teach the game? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think when the strategy stuff started to come in and the data counting started to come in, um, Craig O'Shaughnessy is a huge, huge one. I'm lucky enough to be um, friends with with Craig at this point. Um, Mark Kovacs, Dr. Mark Kovacs, he's another one. Um, Vic Braden, I mean, you can't go wrong there. If you know the history of, of tennis, you know that he was the original tennis scientist, but there's so much research that has been done. And if you, if you can look into it you can really, you know, accelerate your career and what you know and how you can help your players. So I, you know, I, I really don't think there's much excuse nowadays if you don't do the research and if this is your career path and then you want to know as much as possible, but yeah, there's, you know, I, I definitely had some great experiences on court with Pakash. That was great. I had a, an, an amazing mentor in uh, Jamie Parrott in Melbourne when I was growing up. He uh, gave me a scholarship to the, the tennis center there. So it allowed me to train basically for free. And I, you know, I will always be in debt to him for that. But you know, there's a lot of coaches that I've interacted with over the past and continue to do so that might be a small, you know, a small part of my development or something that in an area where they might've been spot on. But I, I think it's, it's you know, I, I draw it from a lot of different inspirations but you know a lot of those og guys are, are, are unbelievable and their methods and their, the science still holds up today you know one of the hard things I, I love golf that's kind of my hobby and by the way i think everyone should have to every coach should have to participate in another sport and be coached in that sport so you remember what it's like to be a beginner and to have things not come easily but my wife actually was a great player she played on the lpga tour she coached at duke and so we get in our own fights about how she coaches me and all that but I'll go down a YouTube rabbit hole. I will find tips online. And my question is always like, well, how do I, I'll come to her and say, I saw this video and this guy told me to swing this way. And she'll be like, man, that's a really rough tip. Like I've never heard that in all my years, but since I'm a novice, I don't know that that maybe wasn't based on science. And you were kind of referring to Vic Braden and how everything is kind of proven, right? Scientifically, how can someone following you online or following me or following someone else how can they figure out what the good information is and what the information is that's kind of made up or trendy, let's say? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really hard. That's, that's maybe one of the hardest things to find because, I mean, just because you have a lot of followers on Instagram or, you know, Facebook or whatever doesn't mean that you really necessarily know what you're talking about either. So I think, you know, you've got to really vet where your information comes from. And I, I think... You know, I, like if I was if I was going down a golf rabbit hole trying to improve with golf, I would be so easily, you know, persuaded by something that I just click on. Oh, how do how do I make a six foot putt? You know, and that sounds like I, I would just be able to roll into that video and come out out the other side knowing exactly what it is. But um, yeah, so I I really don't know the answer to that. How you vet people? I mean, I think you got to look at the at the whole background. You've got to be able to do the research on maybe in history as a, as a coach or as a player. But, you know, I've, I know that there's a lot of, just in terms of Instagram, I know there's a lot of accounts that don't have many followers that are amazing coaches. And then there's quite a few accounts that have huge following and they're putting out bad information that's going to make people worse or potentially hurt themselves. 
I really don't know the, the correct answer to that, what that is. Um, I think it's a really hard one. And, and if I was a beginner, it could be really confusing out there. But I will, I will say, I think a lot of the, the really good coaches, they're all somewhat connected. You know, I mean, I think in the, in the community, people who know what they're doing, they, they tend to be in, this, in similar circles. So maybe that is maybe that's a way that it's able to you're able to find out if somebody's legitimate or not. Yeah, tough tough answer to that. Yeah, I know it's a really hard one because I, I'd like to think I'm legitimate, but maybe I'm not. <laughs> but like I watched your stuff right Definitely away, and not. I was like, oh, I was like, oh man, I love like he is giving out stuff that I know has been proven. It's sound. It's consistent. Like I can tell you put time into it, but I am also a coach, so I can see that if I was a three five player just getting going. I don't know who Joel Myers is and I don't know if what you're saying is this story. So it's such a tough thing. And so I always feel for those people. And I go through the same thing with golf where I get bad tips and I get good tips and it can be a very frustrating process. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people are just putting out things to be different. Or, I mean, you see a lot in the drills, like a lot of drills that are not functional. They look crazy and they look entertaining, but it's for the entertainment factor more than it is the um, educational content. So but it, yeah, it, it is it is hard because there are some very famous coaches out there putting out some really terrible information. And I'm sure I don't have to name anyone, but you you know you've seen it yourself. And I think the more you know about the game, the easier it is to spot those people. The same as it is if you if you're reviewing a coach's resume and they they send you a resume and you you, you can very quickly decide, you know, is this guy legit or is it, they've they've buffered their resume to try and get the job. So, but it, it is hard because it's a it's a you need to know you know, a certain level before you, you can pick them, you know, it's hard. You mentioned a bunch of the great coaches that you've learned from and that you actually had the privilege of playing for. Is there any advice that you got from these coaches at a younger age that has stuck with you that, that has held up and is something that you still teach the kids and adults that you work with today? Yeah, I think discipline was one of the, the biggest things and one of the, probably the reasons where I am where I am. Because I, I always was very focused, even when I didn't really necessarily have something to be focused on. I know that I went through some injuries as a junior, but I always found that my discipline was able to get me to the next point of improvement, whatever that is. Even if I had a, you know, a shoulder injury, I was working on other parts of my game. I'd learn about the game. But, um, you know, I credit Jamie Parrott in Melbourne for that. He was huge for me in terms of how much he, he helped me. And he really mentored me and my mentality towards improvement. And I know that he's helped a lot of other students as well. But um, it doesn't matter what you do. If you don't have discipline, if you don't, you know, have the ability to sort of focus on the times that you don't want to do it, then um, you're not going to go very far. So that was one of the biggest things, I think, was, was discipline and being able to put the hard work in even when there's no one around. I spent a lot of time practicing on my own when I was I was younger. I didn't always have a, a training partner. I didn't always have a private coach, but spent a lot of time hitting serves on my own. And, you know, without that, I think that I, there was no way I would have gotten a college scholarship, even with an injured shoulder. So all those times, I, I always think about that, all those times where I could have been doing something else and I had two hours to go kill and I'd go hit a couple of baskets of serves, put headphones in and do that. Like that paid off so much down the track. I mean, I can still put the ball where I want to want to serve it today because of all those times I put the work in. It doesn't leave you. So I think that discipline and that sort of always trying to get better mentality has stayed with me regardless of what I'm, what I'm doing, whether I'm trying to learn about my tennis, whether I'm trying to be a little bit of a better player or a better coach or whatever it is. So that was something that I always took. I got a, th this one always stuck with me. It's actually my college coach, but he told me coming to the net is like going over a speed bump. So like you hit your approach, you're going fast. 
and then you're going to slow up a little bit, but you're not going to come to a stop, right? You have to hesitate so you can move. And then once you see where the ball is, now you're going to go fast again, right? When you go over a speed bump. And that one like has stuck with me forever. It's such a great visual analogy, whatever. Is there anything specific like that, whether it was tactical or technical that you still use that you learned kind of at a younger age? Um, that's a, that's a great analogy. One thing that was very specific to me was my backhand cross court was never a really great strength of mine, but I was able to change direction with my backhand. So in exchanges where it'd be ad court, ad court, backhand to backhand, and I wasn't able to get forehand and, and dictate, uh, my backhand down the line got me out of a lot of trouble. And it was, it's funny because that was sort of specific to my game. And that was one of the things that Jamie helped me with in terms of, he's like, don't be afraid to take it down the line, even if it's a, a redirect, because it's getting you out of a you know position where, you know, I'm not in control. And that's not always the best place to take the ball, obviously. Um, but that was something with me that, you know, I think we did a lot of work, me being able to redirect it for that potential reason that the next ball I could get a forehand. But I know it was really specific. But it was something that, you know, I, I know as a player, sometimes there's things that players can do that you don't want to necessarily discourage. That might be a little bit of an advantage. That was one for me. Um, but, yeah, like the, the speed bump analogy is awesome. I'm going to use that for sure. Yeah, that, I, that I one has always stuck with Yeah, it's great. That's it's really always good, stuck yeah. with me. I've never heard that before. So there you go. So, you know, a lot of the people, hopefully they'll go visit your page if they haven't been there already, but a lot of your content is either taking stroke analysis from a pro or watching a point from a pro and kind of breaking down what you can learn from it. And I know, I, I know this is a loaded question I'm about to give you, but in your opinion, based on all the things you've gone through, is there a technical lesson that you would value above all others that you think people can learn from watching pro tennis in general? Yeah, I think, well, I think the, the better you get technically, the more efficient the stroke becomes, you know, the easier it is to reproduce that stroke under pressure from time or from um, situational or scoreboard. But if you look at the very best players, it's really that the fundamentals are all the same. You know, the styles might be different. I don't know coaches know this very well, but styles change, but the fundamentals to create topspin or the fundamentals to hit a, a great slice of wide, they're all the same across the board. And you can't break those universal laws, no matter how, you, how hard you try. So there's a lot of uh, coaches and players who are looking to recreate styles. And if they really understand the underly underlying fundamentals behind how that ball is being hit, they can apply it to them to their own game and it can really improve their own strokes. But I think you've got to look beyond the style, I think. Um, so that's really what, where over the course of all of the video that I've watched, all of the points and all of the, the players practice, uh, footage and all of that I sort of come away from there are just fundamental laws that you want to sort of stay really close to abiding by and that's going to help your players the most in terms of fundamental laws I've, I've seen you explain this on Instagram plenty of times and it's awesome but for the the average player out there can you explain the fundamentals of hitting topspin on a ground stroke yeah I mean one of the things that you must do if you can hit topspin is the racket head has to get under the ball you know most players they think they're getting under the ball and they're probably getting a few inches of drop meaning they get very little lift. They can't swing angular to create that, that topspin. Um, another thing that somebody might do is they might keep the racket face open. So even if they are getting below the ball, as they swing up, that racket face is open, so they send it over the fence. So two huge keys to getting topspin is having that racket face closed, have the racket well below the ball, and as you swing up, the strings are going to point to the target, and you'll be able to continue that swing on an angular path up to create spin. And they're two fundamental things. So... 
um, you can't really work, you can't really uh, work around those the, the laws that you must do. You know, if you're not getting enough drop or you're not, you haven't got that racket face closed, you're not going to have the ingredients to be able to create that. I know every player is different, but you know these technical changes, especially you said you had an adult or you know earlier today working on that, and I mean that's going to take thousands and thousands of repetition, right, until they own that. So I have a lot of people come to me and say, "Hey, I want to learn, to, you know, hit more topspin." And you teach them the fundamental. And of course they can't do it day one. That's very difficult. And they almost don't stick with it. And then they just end up slicing or hitting flat. You know, how much time, how, how do you keep someone to have that discipline and commitment so that they can actually master a skill like hitting topspin on a ground stroke? Well, I think it completely depends on what their goals are. Because if my goals are to have them to hit a great topspin forehand, but their goals is just to hit the ball a little bit better, then we're going to be off. So I think they have to be committed you got to find out, okay, are you really willing to work on this or do you just want to hit a slightly better ball? Um, the other thing that I try and do is just have use exaggerated progressions to feel it. You know, I'm like, okay, you, you think you're dropping the racket under the ball. You're only three or four inches under the contact point. So let's start you, you know, well under the ball. We'll start your racket down and then we can drop into that after a few reps and see if you can get a different feel. If you can make it completely feel exaggerated, then you understand how much of a change needs to be made. But it really comes down to the player and what their what their goals are and how committed they're going to be. Because you know, I think we've all had those players that come out for one lesson, and we just know I can give you the information, but unless you're committed to it, it's not going to change. It's like a, a personal trainer. You know, you go to the personal trainer and they say, "Hey, look, I can make you ripped out of your mind, but you're going to have to do the next six months of dieting on your own." You know, so it's. I think it's it's very tough, but I think it depends on the player's commitment level. And some players are really committed and they'll, they'll go through it with you. And other players, um, they'll say they want to do it and they'll keep coming every week, but they won't really necessarily make those changes. I'm with you on that. And that's why, like I said, every coach out there listening should have to do a different sport because my wife will tell me things I got to do on my swing and I'll try it once and I'll go, that felt awful. Like, I don't want to do that. And she's like, well, you told me you want to hit the ball farther. Like, that's what you have to do. And so I get immediately in the mind of that tennis player, like the, the risk and the fear of now I'm worse immediately, Yes. but maybe yes. long-term I'll be better. Like it doesn't make any sense to me as a tennis coach, but then once I become the golf player, I'm like, ah, now, now I get why they want to fight. Yeah. You mentioned before you have a, a great serve. You, you spend a lot of time working on it. It's a beautiful motion. Are there one or two fundamentals that you can share with everyone? I know it's tough over a podcast, but the, the one or two most important fundamentals that you think are there for a serve? Yeah, well, I think for, for my serve, it's my ball toss is always in the same spot. It's always the same height. So I always know when to fire you know, my legs and my swing. Just, the rhythm is always very similar. Um, the other thing is that the swing path for me is very, it's very uh, efficient and economical. So I don't waste a lot of energy um, in regards to the way my racket moves up through contact. And I get to accelerate my motion from... I guess the, the racket drop when my hands separate. My racket comes away from my body and then it accelerates all the way. So there's no pause where I would necessarily lose energy. I can just accelerate up to the contact. So I think that in terms of the, the two things that help me the most is, is where my ball toss is and then uh, the swing path being able to accelerate up through that and not have a, a, a pause in the momentum. Can you describe where you like your ball toss? Yeah, I mean, I think about in front of me for a first serve, but above my right ear. You know, I feel like I can hit up in front of me above my right ear. I know some people say, you know, 1 o'clock, one thirty, but I, I can tend to visualize where my ear is when I'm, I'm looking 
forward and I guess I can hit the slice or the flat serve off that same spot. So for me, that's really where I like to go. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with tossing more to the right. I think players probably don't do that enough. You, know, you can look at um, Apelka who's been hitting that, that ad court T slider where he throws it into the juice court and then just curls the guy completely off the court. I think that's amazing. And I think a lot of pros can probably do that. And by the time a lot of the returners see that that's coming, it's probably too late, you know. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think a lot of players probably looking for the perfect unreadable toss. And I sort of think that you want to master your serves individually before you start to blend them together a little bit. I think it's really hard to hit all of them from the same toss right out of the gate. It's funny. I, people say, oh, well, if I toss too far to the right, then they know I'm going to slice, right? And like you said, you can definitely hit flat or slice from that one o'clock or 1230, whatever you want. But I've always been like, okay, so fine. They know you're slicing. You can slice anywhere. You can slice T, you can slice wide. And I'm like, the counter to that is if you toss it over your head to the left, now I know you're not going to slice. And you can also hit a flat serve kind of wide or kind of T. So I've always been confused. They think you're giving up so much, but they still have no idea where I'm going to hit the serve. Yeah, 100%. I think that the location, you can hit the slice serve everywhere. And a lot of times, regardless of if the player knows it's coming or not, like if you hit a really great serve out wide to the juice court, you've got the guy outside the alley. Yeah, he knows where it's going to be. He's going to make the return. Then you've got two-thirds of the ju- of the whole singles court open. So, I mean, it depends on the score. It depends on how comfortable you are. But I think that, you know, tossing to the right, there's, there's not, a, not a bad thing is tossing to the right. And you're always going to use a slice serve more than you're going to use a big flat serve anyway just because of the of being able to be more pinpoint with the serve, you know, if you are going to be spot serving, you're going to take the pace down with the slice. You're not going to increase and go huge flat to try and hit a target. So I think it's really always interesting with those, those pro pro guys like Nadal, Djokovic and, and Federer, they're always sort of 116 to 118 in, in terms of their miles per hour. It's not because they can't go 130. It's because they're, they know their most accurate pace range. And so, if they're trying to hit a spot regularly trying to get a first serve in and pressure their opponent, that's the pace range that they know that they can hit. And then once you get ahead in the score, then you can certainly go bigger. You know, you can go big and flat once you get ahead and that takes the pressure off you. So definitely nothing wrong with using the slice or tossing a little more to the right. You have a lot of great technical stuff, but I've also seen some really cool tactical videos where you're either showing a practice point or a point from a match. What's the best tactical you know, information that you've learned just this year from, from watching pro tennis that you feel like everyone can use out there? I mean, as simple as it sounds, just making returns down the middle. That's just making a ton of first serves. I mean, if you really play it at a decent level of tennis, you realize how many uh, first serve return errors, second serve return errors you make. And when you really limit those and it gets you in the point, the pressure immediately shifts back to the server having to create something. And I think when you look at the best players in the world right now, they're the ones that are making the most returns. This is like the best era for returners that we've seen. You know, in the 90s, is all about the serves and the emphasis was on the serve strategy. And now it's a lot more about um, the returns. But, you know, also uh, core positioning is something else. I mean, you can definitely have great success in, re- in a return position that's very aggressive and taking the returns on. But you can also have great success by playing back and just making a lot more in. So it just depends on your opponents, depends on what, what com- how comfortable you are shortening your swing or if you do need time to have you know, fit more of that bigger cut in. But that one would be really helpful in terms of if I could go back and teach myself something about return game, it would definitely be just like look to play the middle more often and get into the point 
take more risks after the first couple of shots, maybe. Uh, are you are you like me? Is your list of things that you would have taught yourself when you were younger like 150 things? It's 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 amazing how many things I wish I knew. It's so yeah, it's so many things. It's sad, really. You think about it, you know, they're really they're really basic things as well. You know, I think it, if there was one thing that would have helped me more than anything else that I've come I've come across, I think about this question a lot. Is it's probably focus on performance goals rather than outcome goals, and that's not something that's super measurable. But the best players understand everything is a process. And if you go out on the court and your goal is to win, you can't always control that. You can't control the weather, how your opponent's going to play, but you can certainly control your effort and your performance. And if you can go out there and really focus on, okay, I'm going to you know, hit my slice of wide, look for a short ball and attack the net every chance I get. If you can focus on the performance aspect and tactically what you're trying to execute, it really gives you the best chance to have a great match and you put yourself in a winning position. Whereas I think so many juniors and players, they're so caught up in the outcome. What's your UTR going to be? You're going to win this tournament. Um, the parents as well. But um, I think if there was something that I could go back in time and really retrain my brain to focus on, it would be the performance rather than the outcome. And I really try not to – actually, I'd never asked my kids what the score was or if they won or lost. I only ever asked them how they played. And I found that that's actually helped them more because – they start to give me more of a response. They start to give me more of like tactically what happened. Like they'll give me the score and I'm like, oh, I don't care that score. You know, what was she doing to you? How, you know, what were you doing to her? What was working? What wasn't working? And so they know if they're going to come out, you know, they take the lesson in the week, then I'm going to ask them this. So they've already thought about it. And so they can start to, you know, tactically play it out in their mind. What would they have done better? But definitely performance goals over outcome goals. It's not something that's typically you can measure as much, but that's something I wish I could go on back and focus on more. Out of all the skills across the board, adults, juniors, all the common lacking skills that they have, the number one thing all my players suck at is telling me about a match. So I'll say, I'll say, I'll say, how'd that tournament, you know, how'd you, how'd you do? How'd you, how'd you, how'd you play? Well, I got up three one, and then it was three two, and then they, you know, then it was five four, and then this happened, and, and then I won that, and I'm like, so. I, by the way, I don't know anything. I played bad. Yes. I don't know what that means. Even even something like I I served well. I go, what is that? Did, were you consistent? Was your first serve effective? Were you getting free points? Were you getting short balls? Were you hitting your spots? Like even simple things like that. I've no, noticed that is the number one skill yeah. that these players lack. Yeah. And you, as a coach, you want that feedback, but you also need your players to be consciously aware of that during the match. So they can make adjustments. The better they get at that skill, the more they're able to say, oh, look, I'm, you know, I'm not taking this ball early enough. I'm, I'm on the back foot. I need to shorten my swing and hold my ground. Or it's just little things throughout a match that players have to make adjustments. And they typically don't identify those until later, if they do at all. They would generally just group it in as I played bad. And there's so many little things that they could have changed throughout the match. And I think the best players are able to make those adjustments and notice those things. So you really have to train yourself to look for that um, early. And I think all coaches should press their players to be as descriptive as possible. I forgot what coach I saw this from, but they said that when they evaluate a match with a player, they're not allowed to use the words good, bad, or any synonym for that. So, hey, how, how, how'd you serve? And then well, I served well and they go, uh you know, I, I was consistent. You go, okay, build on that. And then, you know, my targets were this, but when you take away good and bad from analysis, especially the first time you realize how difficult that is. And I fall in that trap too. 
Well, they also have to be honest. You know, you have to be completely honest. And a lot of kids don't want to tell their coach that you know they're hitting their kicks of short to the forehand every time on a second serve, and they're getting destroyed. So you know, they'll say, "Oh yeah, kick serve is working," but you know, or it didn't go as well. But it's very generally very vague, and especially after losses. So you want your players to be as uh, as honest as possible and descriptive as possible, and then it helps you to work with them on those things going forward too. All right, so we're going to finish up with a couple Instagram questions here. Uh, first one, total softball, but they want to know how fast you serve now and then what your fastest serve ever was. So I was on one of the radar guns at the Australian Open when I was about 18 and I hit 227, which I think is 142 miles an hour. I think it's 142. Like a big slap bomb, basically. No, no direction, but I just put it into context. No direction, aiming at the middle of the box completely. Um, and then I, now I'm, uh, I don't know, wouldn't even know. I rarely get to serve hard at all these days. It's mostly just, you know, hitting to somebody's sweet spot and hoping that they can shorten their swing up and get it back. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe 125. I don't know. Okay. 140. Maximum. I'm just going to tell you right now, if you hit, I don't care if it hit the back fence on the fly. If you're dropping 142, that should be somewhere in your Instagram bio. I would be bragging about that. that forever. The problem with that is then is that everyone would expect to come out and see it. And I can't do that anymore, you know? Like, everyone's like, oh, I'm, I'm here for return practice. So I'd have five hours of return practice in a row. My shoulder will fall off. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> uh, you, you kind of mentioned discipline earlier, but do you have any standards or non-negotiable rules that you have for a practice? Yeah, I, I don't have parents on the court. Um, that's one thing that I, I'm upfront about from, from day one, you know, I involve the parents in everything I can. I keep them up, updated on their kids' progress and everything that we're working on. But when I'm working with a player, I want it to be me and them. I get the most feedback and I get the best results out of the, the kids that I work back, work, work with. Um, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it also helps me to, I guess, weed out the helicopter crazy parents. Um, and if a parent has a problem with that, they're usually not the person I want on the side of the court anyway. So that's probably a lot of weeding at times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, your best, at, this is actually two questions this time, but what is your best advice for the 3 singles player? 3 singles player. Um, work on your serve, work on your return. Definitely understand how much of an impact the start of the point has on the overall tactics of the game and see if you can make your opponent play bad. That's something I think a lot of 3-0s, 3-5 players are always looking to have a great match and play well. But there are certain areas and there are certain tactical things that you can do to drop your opponent's level. And sometimes that's a little bit easier than bringing your own level up to a place it's not always at. Does this answer change at all? This person also wanted to know what your best advice for a 4-0 player would be. So as they get more advanced, does anything change for you? Uh, I think, well, it's similar in the, the quality of the start of the point. You know, I think that's where it, it just gets... And we know that from the data, but um, the call, the start of the point makes such a big difference. You get to the 5-0 and a 4-0, and the 4-0 is not going to get into many points with a 5-0 player, you know. So definitely got to work on having more weapons um, at that level, I think. But, yeah, that's probably the, the biggest thing is the start of the point. What is your biggest pet peeve as a coach? Biggest pet peeve is laziness. I can't stand that people are lazy because I'm not lazy at all. And I, it, I find it very hard to think about going in and going to a training session or a practice session and not giving 100% if you don't feel like you can be out there or you're not out there trying to 
you know, get better. I don't know what the point is. I don't see the point. And so for me, that's probably the biggest thing. I love that. My big, my biggest pet peeve is when uh, a player, like maybe at the net guesses one way and they get past the other way and they go, oh, I knew they were going there. And I go, wow, no, you, didn't. You, you knew they were going to pass you the other way and you ran the opposite direction. Like that wasn't very smart. You yeah. know, <laughs> how, how annoying is that as a coach when you go to say something to someone, you give them some advice, they say, I know. You, know, you don't know. You don't know because you didn't do it. <laughs> it, it. It's just the absolute best. Um, okay, last one. We're going to have to talk through this one because I don't know, but I'm already scared because you said 142. Three people asked this. They want to know who would win a match between us. Okay. You'd, you've never seen me play. I was serving volley. I never touched 142. I was probably like in the mid to high 100s. Or sorry, 120s, I mean. Um, serving volley, chip and charge. Three shots or less. That was my goal. I wanted you to feel like we were not playing the sport of tennis. So that makes it that makes it really hard. So I was I wasn't a great returner. Um, I was great on my side of the my side of the the coin when I was serving, but really it might come down to how many first serves I can make. Because if you're looking at a lot of my second serves and I, I I kicked it up, but someone who liked to come in and take it before it got too high, that might be a bit of a problem for me. So. Yeah, it depends. I didn't play a lot of players that, that really pressed coming forward that much, to be honest. Um, but you never really know. Like that's that's one of those things where it always makes somebody uncomfortable. No one's ever comfortable when somebody's crushing the net on them. Right. So yeah. what, I, I used to love coming on one-hand backhands, but if you're still dropping heat, then how about this? So I'm actually, I might be coming, you know that ITF in April in San Diego? I think it's a, a grade one. At, at Bonds? Yes. So I might be in town for that. Either way, I'll definitely be back in town for the uh, the women's national. So maybe I'll hop over to it's yeah, Coronado. Come right? over to Coronado. We'll yeah, just Coronado we'll, Tennis Center. We'll we'll just pretend like we both held six times. We could just play a breaker. If we can just, <laughs> just play a tiebreaker. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I went, yeah. There's no chance I'm anywhere near 142 now, so I'll be lucky to crack 125, maybe massive if I can go the biggest. That's the hardest thing for me is I don't play anymore at all, and like I can go out and hit, but the second I have to return. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't played in yeah. a year. That's really hard to find your time. No, that's that's completely the, that's completely the thing. I mean, the the timing on return that can be so difficult. I mean, trying to get used to so, the, the pace and just making clean contact. I always found that a problem, especially on the forehand return. A lot of players that have the more semi-western western grips do as well. So I was no different there. Okay, good. So forehand return, I'm filing that one away. Perfect. Get, get to the forehand return. I'll just, I'll try and chip it. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, Joel, Hey, I appreciate your time. And you know, for people, most people out here listening to this probably already follow you on Instagram, but can you just let them know where they can find you online and kind of what programs you offer? Yeah. So you can find me at uh, Joel Myers tennis. So Joel underscore Myers underscore tennis um, on Instagram. And then I'm currently the tennis director here at Coronado tennis center. So if you're in San Diego or you know, in the area of Southern California, you can look me up and I'm, I'm around usually. So you can find me there. Awesome, Joel. Well, thanks for your time and appreciate you being on. See you, Jonathan. All right. I want to thank Joel for coming on today. He's a great guy and he'll actually be joining us a few times in 2023 after some of the Grand Slams to discuss tactics from the tournament, shots that broke down in some of the big matches, and any other cool things that we can learn from watching pros on the biggest stage. So keep a lookout for that in the coming months. My favorite thing from today's episode was the brief discussion we had on returning deep through the middle. My friend Jessica Bagula mentioned that this is a primary tactic that she uses in matches, and it's also something that holds up all the way down to the 3-0 level. 
So start aiming middle more often, make more returns, and see if you start winning more matches. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.